once again to be able to come together as brothers and sisters in the Lord and worship together. What a great blessing to be able to come once more. I knew that I was going to be preaching this afternoon, so I did not uh, do as much as I usually do, but, but uh, I do not have anything to fear because after the service, I will be meeting with my son and Cheesecake Factory. So, yeah, it's uh, I'm going to make up for it, though. I can promise you that. We we have this uh, tradition we've kind of developed over the years. Whenever it's somebody's birthday, we get together for a night and have a cheesecake factory. But I broke that last year. It was a long time ago. So I, I kind of like it better. I like the Cajun ribeye better after that long cheesecake factory. All right. This passage that was read to us just a moment ago says something about God's silence. And we're going to get to that here in just a couple of moments, near the end of this lesson actually. But we do want to look at some foundational things uh, by way of introduction. There has, I guess for several centuries, and I, I scratch my head when I think about this, why is this matter such a matter of controversy in the world of Christendom over the silence of the scriptures? Well, basically the controversy boils down to this. Is the silence of the scriptures prohibitive or permissive? Brother Kendall and I were discussing this right before I got up and the Bible is just so very clear on the matter. We wonder why it is so controversial. It's kind of like the subject of baptism. Yes, baptism is a controversial subject, but that doesn't mean the Bible's not clear on the subject. It is abundantly clear, and so it is when it comes to the silence of the Scriptures. But it may be the case that you have some confusion about that in your mind, and so hopefully by the end of this lesson that will be cleared up for you and you'll have a better understanding of what we're talking about here when we discuss the silence of the Scriptures. By prohibitive, we mean does the silence of the Scriptures prohibit or forbid a teaching or a practice? And by Permissive, we mean does the silence of the scriptures grant or allow us to engage in a teaching or a practice. And so really that's all it boils down to. Is it prohibitive or is it permissive? Thomas Campbell, on September the 7th, 1809, delivered a speech entitled Declaration and Address, wherein he stated these famous words, we speak where the Bible speaks and are silent where the Bible is silent. As a matter of fact, that is on the front of every bulletin we have. Speak where the Bible speaks, and we are silent where the Bible is silent. 
there was a Scottish bookseller by the name of Andrew Munro who was present to hear Mr. Campbell give that speech. And at the end, he said, Mr. Campbell, if we adopt that as a basis, then there is an end to infant baptism. Of which Mr. Campbell replied, of course. If infant baptism be not found in the scriptures, we can have nothing to do with it. And he was exactly right. In more recent history, but still several years ago, there was a member of the church by the name of Leroy Garrett. And uh, he wrote an article by this catchy title, The Motto That Got Us in Trouble, us meaning Churches of Christ. The motto that got us in trouble. What is the motto that got us in trouble? Listen to what he says. He penned the following. While Thomas Campbell is not to be blamed for it, this is the motto that got us in trouble, and it continues to get us in trouble, he says. But none of the mottos, original or borrowed, has blown up in our faces like this one that Thomas Campbell bequeathed to us. It is the motto that we have all memorized and practiced the most that has boomeranged on us, serving as fodder for our multiplicity of divisions. Where the scriptures speak, we speak. Where the scriptures are silent, we are silent. So that motto, he says, it has gotten us in trouble and it continues to get us in trouble. So I guess that's why we're in a lot of trouble because we have it on the front of our bulletin every Sunday. But he says, you know, that motto, it has boomeranged on us. It just causes division. Now, in particular, he's talking about the latter part of that motto where the scriptures are silent, we are silent. And so for the next few moments, uh, we're going to talk about the silence of the Scriptures, and we want to look at it from two vantage points, all right? So first of all, we want to take some time to make sure we understand what we mean when we say we are silent where the Bible is silent. Now, I think we can understand the first part. We speak where... The Bible speaks. We don't have too much issue with that. But the controversy comes into play with the latter part of that motto. We are silent where the Bible is silent. So what exactly do we mean by that? It is very simple. Very simply, if the Bible is silent on something then it doesn't authorize it. It's just that simple. If the Bible is silent on something, then it doesn't authorize it. You may recognize the uh, name G.C. Brewer, one of the old-timey preachers. He uh, preached a sermon that we have in written format 
Brother Brewer talked about this, and I love what he said in that sermon. Listen to this. Everyone, everyone should know what the meaning of this well-known motto is, that we practice that which the Bible authorizes, and we decline to practice that which the Bible does not authorize. Now listen to him. To remain silent means that we will stop practicing where the Bible stops teaching. That our practice in matters of religion is limited by the word of the Lord, restricted by divine revelation. That is what the motto means, as everyone should know. And therefore, he says, now listen to this, the man who introduces something in the worship that the Bible does not authorize is the one who is speaking where the Bible is silent. He is practicing that for which he has no scriptural authority. And that's it, brethren. There is no authority. That's what we mean by the silence of the scriptures. The well-known verse, Colossians 3 and verse 17, it's a very simple statement, but it is a profound statement. It ought to serve as the foundation for everything we teach and practice because that's exactly what it says. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Right? What does that expression mean? We talked about this in a previous lesson. In the name of means by the authority of. Now, by implication, does that passage not say something about the silence of the Scriptures? Well, indeed it does. If there is no authority from the Lord, then by definition He has been silent. He has not spoken. So this verse implies that, that where there is no authority, God has not spoken. He therefore has been silenced, uh, silent, and His silence would therefore be prohibited and would express His disagreement if we were to teach and practice something for which there is no authority from the Lord. It would do us well at this moment just to spend a, a couple of minutes here talking about the matter of expediencies or the matter of aids. Because sometimes this quibble is raised. Well, nowhere in the Bible does it say anything about songbooks or communion trays, or containers. And so they say the Bible is silent on songbooks and communion trays. Brethren, the Bible's not silent on songbooks or communion trays or containers. And it is a failure to understand, listen to me, it is a failure to understand that if something is not explicitly stated in the Scriptures, but it is implied, then the Bible's not silent on that. Let me give you an everyday illustration. If I take my car to the mechanic and I explicitly say to him, replace the alternator, 
Well, how would he go about executing what I have authorized? Would he not use as aids or expediencies tools? He might use a socket set. Now, I did not explicitly tell him to use a socket set. But it's implied because a socket set would simply serve as an aid or an expediency to execute what I have in fact authorized for him to do. Replace the alternator. And so we understand that, don't we? Very simple. We, we use it in everyday life. And so likewise, using containers as an aid, you know, or these trays to distribute the fruit of the vine would likewise, it would not be an example of, of biblical silence because the fruit of the vine must of necessity have something to hold it. That's common sense. Now, if we were not authorized, if God had not commanded to partake of the fruit of the vine, there would be no need to talk about containers. It would be superfluous to talk about using a songbook if God had not commanded us to sing. You see, a songbook does not add anything to the instructions. What does a songbook do? It simply serves as an expediency or an aid or the overhead as an aid to execute and to carry out decently and in order what God has commanded us to do. That makes sense? Now, we, we understand this principle in everyday life. Why does it become so confusing all of a sudden when it comes to religion? Well, it's not really that hard. If we can understand the difference between an aid, something that aids the execution of a command, and something that is an addition. You see, additions are sinful. Aids are not. Let's look at some biblical passages now. We want to look at a couple in the Old Testament Let's begin with a well-known example of Nadab and Abihu. This example of them offering a strange or profane fire tells us something about God's silence in Leviticus chapter 10. Let's turn to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10 verses 1 and 2. It says, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, censers like a bowl, and they put fire in it, and they put incense on it. Now listen to this. And they offered, New King James says, profane fire. Some other translations say strange fire. Before the Lord, which, now notice this, which he had not what? Commanded them. And then what happened to them? Fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Now let's just take a look at that. Make sure we understand. 
So they offered a profane or strange fire. It's interesting that the English Standard Version and even the more liberal NIV, which I'm not recommending, I'm just saying in this instance, the NIV and the ESV says they offered unauthorized fire. That's exactly right. That's exactly what they did. They offered unauthorized fire. What made the fire unauthorized? Well, the verse tells us, which he, God, had not, what? Commanded them. We could say it like this, on which God had been silent on. He had not authorized that. Where did Nadab and Abihu retrieve this fire? Well, I don't know. It doesn't tell us, but it doesn't matter. God was silent on the place. Now, he didn't have to go through and say, now, Nadab and Abihu, do not get the fire from this location. Do not get the fire from that location. When God said where to get the fire from, what did that do? That excluded everywhere else they could get fire from. And so they offered unauthorized fire, which God had not authorized, which he had been silent on. Now, if that example is not strong enough, let's take a look at an even stronger example. And this concerns the case of Uzzah. Remember Uzzah? In uh, 2 Samuel, if you want to be turning there, 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. David gotten up some men to bring the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, back to Jerusalem. The uh, Philistines had taken the Ark on a prior occasion. And it made its way from city to city there among the Philistines. And, and it ended up in a little town or village called Kerjath-Jerim. So David wanted to go down there to Kerjath-Jerim and retrieve the ark, bring it back to the city of Jerusalem where it was supposed to be. And so the record of this is found in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And uh, let's begin with verse 3, and I want to read several verses here beginning with verse 3. It says, so they, they set the ark of God, now listen to this terminology, on a, what kind of cart? On a new cart. Well, that's going to become very significant here in just a moment. A new cart, which was a new method of transportation than what God had uh, told them previously. We'll get to that here in just a moment. But they set the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Then David... Verse 5 says, Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood and harps and stringed instruments and tambourines and sistrums and on cymbals. And so they were really partying it up. I mean, they were celebrating this occasion. Well, they shouldn't be celebrating because something bad is about to happen. 
Verse 6. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah, try to get this picture in your mind's eye, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. Why? For the oxen stumbled. And so this new cart they had devised was on the back of oxen transporting the ark. The oxen stumbled. The ark of God was about to fall. And naturally, what did Uzzah do? I need to stop this ark from falling and busting all to pieces. Do you think he was sincere? Oh, yeah, he was sincere. I don't doubt his sincerity for one second. In uh, verse 7, listen to this. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his, New King James says, for his error. New American Standard says his irreverence. Now, I believe that he thought in his mind he was being reverent because he didn't want the ark destroyed. He was being sincere. So I do like the terminology, his error, because it was error that he had committed. And uh, what happened to him? He died there by the ark of God. Why was Uzzah's action called error? Why was it wrong? Well, very simply, because the transportation of the ark on that new cart was in violation of divine authority. And what God had told them previously back in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 8. And that is the Levites were to transport the ark of God on their shoulders. That is not the way they transported the ark, was it? It was an entirely new method of transportation. Now, this is not the end of the story. As this context reveals, and we don't have the time to read it, but David became a little upset with the Lord because he broke out against us and killed him. He just kind of washed his hands of the matter, went back to Jerusalem, but David had some time to think about it, and he came to his senses, and he decided to retrieve the ark of God again and bring it back to Jerusalem. And so, if you will, turn over to 1 Chronicles chapter 15, and I want you to notice a powerful statement that David made in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verse number 2. 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 2. As David was getting ready to transport the ark of God back to Jerusalem, he made this observation. Here is the lesson that he learned. Look at it. 1 Chronicles 15, verse 2. David said, No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites. 
For the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. Now, I, I want you to notice there what David said. He said, no one may carry the ark of God but the Levites. This goes back to Deuteronomy 10 and verse 8 that I mentioned just a moment ago where God said to the people of Israel that he had separated the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord. So God specified how the ark was to be transported and he was silent on other methods of transportation. But his silence, as David said here, now think about this. David said, no one may carry the ark but the Levite. David, where did God ever explicitly say, no one else may carry the ark of God? God never explicitly said that. He did say the Levites were to carry, but he did not explicitly say no one else could. David, how did you come to this conclusion that no one else may carry the ark of God? Because David learned that God's silence was the same as if he had explicitly said no one else could do it. And David learned the lesson that many need to learn today in religion that God's silence is clearly prohibited. He did not have the authority to devise that new method of transportation. There's one other thing that David said about this matter in verse 13 of 1 Chronicles 15. Drop down to verse 13. And uh, David is reflecting upon the previous time that they had to transport the ark. And um, reflected upon what Uzzah did, he said in verse 13, for because you did not do it the first time, that is the first time we tried to transport the ark, you, you, you didn't follow God's law the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us. That's the death of Uzzah. Now listen to what he says, because we did not consult him, him being God, the New King James says, about the proper order. New American Standard says the ordinance. What is the ordinance? What was the proper order? It goes back to what he said there in verse 2. No one may carry the ark but the Levites. God did not have to go through and explicitly say, now don't carry the ark of God any other way or on the back of oxen on a different car. He didn't have to do that, did he? Think about how large the Bible would be if God explicitly told us everything we could not do. That is not the way God has communicated His will to us. Rather, He has spoken and whatever He has authorized, we are permitted to do. And where God has been silent on matters, we do not have the right and the authority Now, I want to apply this principle here to instrumental music. So I want to make a parallel between the ark of God and what David said and instrumental music in worship. 
All right, concerning the ark of God, the tribe of Levi was to transport the ark of God on their shoulders. And God was silent on any other method of transportation, wasn't he? David concluded from what Uzzah did. Here in 1 Chronicles 15, verse 2, David concluded no one else, no one may carry the ark but the Levites. What was the consequence for disobeying and ignoring God's silence? It resulted in the death of Uzzah. Now, let's apply that principle to instrumental music. We are to, what, sing, make melody in our heart to the Lord, Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16, other verses speak about singing. God has been silent on using instrumental music. We must conclude, like David did, the same principle. And that is no one may employ mechanical instruments of music in worship, but sing. What would be the consequence of ignoring God's silence? The consequence of adding to the Word of God is spelled out in Revelation 22, verse 18. It has eternal ramifications. Somebody says, well, well preacher, you, you can't say for sure that someone will be lost for using instrumental music. Well, can we say for sure that someone will be lost for doing that for which they have no authority? You see, when people make that sort of statement, they do not understand the authority principle and the silence of God. How far will you carry that? The Bible does not explicitly say anywhere that we cannot use a hamburger and 7-Up at the Lord's table. Well, you just can't say for sure that someone will be lost for using those things. Where does it end? Where would that line of argumentation end? It all goes back to what God has authorized and that we respect His silence and that we understand that His silence is prohibitive in nature. Okay, let's look at a few New Testament passages. First of all, in uh, the book of Hebrews, and this was the verse that was read earlier, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 14. Hebrews 7 and verse 14. Before we read that verse, let's just make the observation that the Hebrews writer gave one chapter later in chapter 8, verse 4, that if Jesus were on earth, he could not be a priest. If Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest. Well, why? Why is that the case? How come Jesus cannot be a priest on earth? Hebrews 7, verse 14 is the answer. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke, get this, nothing concerning priesthood or being priests. 
Jesus was from the tribe of Levi, uh, from the tribe of Judah. To be a priest, you had to be from the tribe of what? Levi. This verse says concerning priests from Judah, Moses spoke nothing. Or we could say it like this, Moses was silent. God was silent on any other tribe functioning and serving as priests. Did God have to go through and say, now the tribe of Judah can't be a priest, the tribe of Naphtali can't be a priest, the tribe of Benjamin? You see what I'm saying? See how that would go? God didn't have to go through and explicitly say, this tribe, this tribe, this tribe can't. You see, what God authorized and only what he has authorized is what goes with it. And he was silent on any other tribe being able to serve as priests. This is a powerful argument right here from the Hebrews writer, which shows that God's silence is prohibitive. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 6. All right, listen to what this verse says. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. He says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us, us being Paul and Apollos. Paul wanted the Corinthians to, to learn something from him and Apollos. What, well, what was it? That you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written. Do not think beyond this, what is written. Now, if one wanted to do that, how do you suppose that could be done? How would a person accomplish going beyond what is written if they do not have to enter into the realm of the silence of the Scriptures? Going beyond what is written, it would be to ignore the silence of the Scriptures and uh, believing that the silence of the Scriptures would be permissive. Paul said, it's not permissive. You don't need to go beyond. You must not go beyond what is written. That is such a clear verse, isn't it? What about this one? 2 John verse 9. 2 John verse 9. John wrote these words. He said, whoever transgresses. Now, that's the New King James. The word, the original word that is translated transgresses is translated as to go beyond or, or go on ahead in, in other translations. And really, that's literally what the Greek word means. It literally means to go beyond something. And it harkens back to what we just looked at in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Do not go beyond what is written. But it says, whoever transgresses or goes beyond and does not abide in the doctrine or the teaching of Christ does not have God. 
how would one go about going beyond the doctrine of the teaching of Christ if such does not involve entering into the realm of the silence of the Scriptures? Let's look at another one. 1 Peter chapter 4. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. Now, just listen to this plain statement. If anyone does what? Speaks. Let him speak as the oracles of God. What are oracles? Oracles are simply words. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the words of God. So wherever there is the word of God, which is authority, then we can speak. But what's the implication? What if there are no oracles or words of God? In other words, what if God has been silent? Can we just speak anyway? You think about what this verse teaches by implication. Wherever there are no words of God, wherever God has been silent, in other words, we don't have the right to speak. If any man speaks, let him do so how? As the oracles of God. As the words of God. I think that is as plain as can be for any sincere and honest person. Look at Revelation chapter 22 verse 18. Revelation chapter 22 verse 18. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, get it now, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. Do not add to the word of God. But yet when you ignore God's silence, and you teach things and you practice things for which God has been silent on, are you not therefore adding to His Word? Well, indeed you are. How else would such be accomplished? Are there eternal consequences for doing that? Brother Kendall and I were talking about this before, and we made the observation that, you know, one of the unique things that separates us rest of the religious world is that the religious world, by and large, there are some exceptions. I've read denominational writers, very, very few, who would agree, but by and large, 99% of the time, they believe that the silence of the scriptures is permissible. Well, it doesn't say you can't. You ever heard that argument before? Well, it doesn't say you can't use mechanical instruments. That's not, the, that's not the issue. The issue is this. Has God given us the authority and permission to use mechanical instruments? We understand the principle of authority in everyday life. It's, it's really, brethren, it's really no different when it comes to God's Word. So, you know, here am I, and I order a call-up Lowe's, and I, I, I order a fridge. And so they get in that big truck and they come to my house and they unload the fridge that I ordered. They set it up, they go back out to the truck and they bring out a dishwasher. 
and a washing machine and a dryer. And I say, wait a minute. I didn't order those things. Now, what if they were to say, well, you did say we did? I, I suspect they might get fired from their jobs. Why? Because they understand the principle of authority and silence. And we can understand it when it comes to God's Word. Here's the thing I love about what God has done for us. He has made it clear that you respect my silence and that you abide by what I have authorized. And so the matter of instrumental music is very simple. That's really what it boils down to. It's just that simple. I know it's hard for people in our modern age to wrap their minds around that because they've been so brainwashed into thinking otherwise. But we can understand the principle of permission. But our time is gone. We're going to stop right here because we've got some other passages. But hopefully these things we've explored here this afternoon have been helpful and perhaps uh, cleared up maybe some confusion that you've had about this subject. If you have any more questions uh, about it, please come. We'll be glad to do our best to answer those questions. But if you're not a Christian here this afternoon, in order to become one, you must follow and only follow what God has authorized. What has He said about that? You must believe that Jesus Christ is Son of God proclaimed. If you do not believe that, you will die in your sins, John 8, 28. You must be willing to turn from your sins, change your mind about the way you're going to live. That's repentance. And if you do not repent, you will perish. Are you willing to make the great confession for yourself? Just as the eunuch did in Acts chapter 8, verse 37. You know, I find it amazing that he said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Philip would not baptize him until he made the confession. You know what that tells me? It's essential. Are you willing to say, I believe, yes, I believe Jesus Christ is God's Son. Upon that confession of faith, there is where you contact the blood of Jesus. Not literally, but symbolically. The water is the means by which you appropriate the blessings of the blood of Christ. Romans 6 verse 3. You get into Christ, you get into His death where He shed His blood that washes away your sins. Acts 22, 16, Revelation 1, 5. You do that here today, if you have not. If you are a Christian, you put your Lord on in baptism in the past, but you can straight away. Maybe you've been ignoring what God has authorized. You've been embarking upon those areas that are not biblical been ignoring God's silence. We can not only do that in worship, we can do that in everyday life. It's not just limited to worship. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do you need to come repenting of your sins, confessing your sins? We will pray for you. We will help you in every way that is right and good. As together we stand, as we sing.